0: That's a good word, Wayne, and I'm grateful for it. That thing he mentioned there about getting into deep doctrine, we're going to do that today. Uh, We're going to try to make that popularly available, Uh, but yeah, we're going to take a deep dive today. This is very different for me, what we're going to do today to finish out the month of July. Pastor Doug will be back up next week. I'll come back in the fall to continue the series in Hebrews. Before I give you the preview for today, let me give you the review of what we have done. Uh, the audience, the purpose, and the theme of the epistle to the Hebrews. We know that the audience is believing Jews, people that throughout their lives they were following the laws and using the priesthood and the temple and, and good things that God gave for the forgiveness of sins. But then Jesus came along, the story of Jesus came along, and they have trusted on Christ and Christ alone for their for the forgiveness of sins. But their their view of Messiah was that once Messiah came We're going to be good now, right? I don't have to struggle with sin anymore, and we're not going to have any hard times and hard temptations and hard teachings. Instead, they started to believe in Jesus, and things got hard. And so then the purpose of the book was the writer saying, don't quit. Don't go back to the temples. Don't go back to the sacrifices. Don't go back to what makes you feel like home and comfortable. Keep going with Jesus. Persevere with Jesus. And so the theme then for these four chapters has been Jesus is better and greater than what you would go back to. He's better than angels. He's better than sacrifices. We saw he's the better brother, the better king, the better captain. Last week, he's even a better Sabbath. He's a better rest. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. So stick with Jesus. That's been the theme. And by extension to us, as we follow Jesus and run into hard things, the call is stick with Jesus. Now, this week, here's your preview the writer starts a new comparison. He's compared Jesus to Moses, and he's compared him to to, uh, to angels, to lots of things. And this week, he starts comparing Jesus to the priesthood, the, the office of priest, the high priest as well. And in that process, as he starts to compare Jesus, he drops a name. That name is what makes today hard. That name is Melchizedek. Here's why it's hard. There are names I could say in the Bible and as soon as I say their name, it activates an entire story for you, and you know the entire story arc. I can just say, Moses. And you go, yeah, I know that guy. Um, his, his mom hid him in the river because Pharaoh was trying to kill the baby boys. And he got picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter, and he learned in that palace. He ends up having i am skipping a lot. He runs out into the wilderness, and the, the, the bush talks to him, the burning bush talks to him. He leads the people out of uh, of slavery. Yeah, I know Moses. I could say David, and you go, yeah, the, the Goliath guy. Yeah, he killed Goliath, and he killed the, the lion and the bear trying to get to a sheep. He had to run from the king. He eventually comes king. I know David. The name he drops today is this name Melchizedek, and for most of you, I'm talking, I'm talking most Christians, I'm talking seminary level educated Christians. When I say the word Melchizedek, it activates nothing for you. You have no background to what that guy is. He's mentioned just a few times in the Bible: Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and right here, but. This writer, he brings up Melchizedek while he's doing this comparison to the priests, and then he takes a several-paragraph detour to say this. He starts with Melchizedek, and he goes, Wait, you know what? i got a lot to say about this Melchizedek guy, but you guys aren't ready for it. You're not mature enough for it. You're, and he goes on for all of chapter 6, a lot of chapter 5, saying you're not even ready to hear about this Melchizedek guy. Then he goes to chapter 7 and goes, Now, back to this Melchizedek guy, and starts that. So what we're going to do, is just take the Melchizedek comparison. I know you know nothing about him. That's okay. I'm going to walk you through it. So then you might ask, well, then why are we going to do that? Why are we going to talk about this mysterious, obscure figure? Well, the writer of Hebrews seems to be saying he's going to teach, Melchizedek teaches us something about Jesus. And learning everything we can about Jesus is worth it. And so if we have to look at this Melchizedek guy to get a a level of maturity and knowing about Jesus, let's do it. Let's look at this Melchizedek figure and what he can teach us about Jesus. That's what we're going to do. So here's your general outline. He's going to start with this. The priesthood, the priests in Israel, they were great. That was a good idea God gave. You know, and those priests, there was, there was one person that really figures as special in the priesthood, and his name is Melchizedek. He was uniquely good at being a priest. We'll see why. And now this Melchizedek, man, he's awesome. He's even better than Abraham, your progenitor, the, literally the father of your, all, of your entire nation. Your kids, our kids, sing songs about it. Father Abraham had many sons, and that's all of these people. I mean, Melchizedek, a better priest, better than Abraham, and then the, the clincher, and Jesus, even better than him. Even better than the guy who's better than your priest and better than your progenitor, Jesus is better than all of them. That's your general outline, and then I'll have some application thoughts at the end. So let's get started. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16 again, and I got a few thoughts for you on that. Verse chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He is that priest. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act, here's their purpose, to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, stop it there for a second. Without question, if we did this word by word, line by line, these three verses could be a 40-minute sermon in and of themselves. It's packed with a lot of good meaning. For our purposes today, because I want to get to this Melchizedek comparison and our survey of the letter to the Hebrews, I just want to use it to make sure you understand how important the priests were. That when you are reading this as the original audience, you grew up in Judaism, when you thought about the priest, they were a very big deal. When you thought about the great high priest, he was a huge deal in your country, in your culture. I just want to make sure you know what the priests are. So a good definition here is the priests were an intermediary. The people needed someone to go to God on their behalf, and that's what the priests did. We see it very early in the Old Testament narrative. That's what Moses did for Israel. God said, I, I want all of you to come up to Sinai. I want all of my people to come up here. But the people were fearful of the holiness of God, and so they go to Moses and say, will you go for me? I, I don't know. This, this God's kind of scary. He's powerful. Will you go on our behalf? And Then as Moses takes them out of slavery and puts them in the land and in the wilderness, we create this priesthood that they go on behalf of the people to God. You might have experienced something like that, where you needed to go before a boss or students go before the principal. Some of you might have needed to go before a judge before, and you wished you had somebody to go on your behalf to that person because it was a fearful situation. It's much more for them. They have this desire to go to God. They want to be close to God. If you're a believing Jew and you believe in Yahweh, well, I want my sins forgiven. I want to offer offerings to the God that's given me so much, but I can't go there. He's too holy. I can't go into where he is. But I want my sins forgiven, and I I want to give to him. Will anyone go for me? Can anyone go on my behalf? Feel the, the panic of that. I need to get to God. Well, who will go for me? Your priest will. The priests hold that power to go into the presence of God on behalf of the people. It's particularly dramatic here with something that you might not catch in verse 14. It says, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Other translations will say who passed through the veil. I love this picture. Because what he is picturing is, you've got a high priest who is important. He's awesome. Once a year, he passes physically through a heavy veil. It's a heavy curtain that separates everybody from the presence of God, They're in that place called the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant is, and that one man on certain days with very particular ceremonies and procedures, he can go into the fearsome presence of God and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so your sins can be forgiven. What a monumental task this priest can do. And so he's picturing this, your physical priest that goes in through that veil, He's saying, what Jesus did was pass through a whole other veil. He didn't pass through a heavy curtain into the presence of God to bring a little bit of blood once a year so that sins could be forgiven once a year. No. Jesus passed through the veil that is the heavens. He passed through space and time and didn't bring to God a sacrifice that would forgive sin for a little while. He didn't bring a sacrifice except himself. He goes through the veil through heavens to God himself and says, I'm it. I have satisfied your demand for wrath on sin and presents himself." So I hope you feel the significance of what a priest is. You need someone to go to God for you. And Jesus was the better, perfect priest who goes through the veil of the heavens to present to God a sacrifice for your sins. Then, one more thing I want to mention. That's, That's the importance of priests, but I want to mention here through verse, I believe that's in 15. We have this high priest who sympathizes with us but the end of that sentence is yet without sin. I fear in American Christianity we emphasize he, had, he can sympathize with us and we don't emphasize enough that he is yet without sin. Yeah. Yes, he sympathizes. And listen, it's very good news. You've been lied about, he's been lied about. You've, been, you've, you've suffered abuse, he's suffered abuse. You've had some hard family situations, he's had some hard family situations. They thought he was crazy at the beginning. He's been through what you've been through. He sympathizes with you. Maybe you can even you could even say from that campaign late last year early this year. He does get you. But that's an incomplete picture. Yes, he gets what we go through. But he is yet without sin. He's close to you. But don't ever forget, he's not like us. He is high and holy. He gets you. He understands your trials, but then he is high and holy, and that's very good news. Because then he is a better priest. He's able to go to God on your behalf. He's able to bring a better gift and a better sacrifice, not of blood of goats, not blood of lambs. He brings himself perfectly because he is yet without sin, despite also knowing your sympathy. So let's start here. The priesthood is awesome. It was a good gift God gave. And Jesus is even better than that priesthood. So hold up in your mind. The priesthood is great. Now skip with me to chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. We know what the priests are and the high priest. Here is what the writer gives us. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, so by God who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's from Jesus' baptism in the Gospels. Verse 6, and he, God, says in another place, this is Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's when he drops the name. So Jesus is our high priest, not by any kind of bloodline. He is our high priest because God said you will be. And you'll be a priest forever, just like Melchizedek was. That word, priest forever, that's a big deal for the original reader because they had this problem. Sometimes you had a good priest and sometimes you had a bad priest. There was a great deal of trepidation when one good priest would die or go off the scene. You don't know who's going to take that spot next. Jesus is priest forever. You don't have to worry about some corrupt high priest coming in later. He's got the job forever. And now, if you keep reading... This is where the text goes off. He just drops the name and then says, I, w- I have a lot I wanna tell you about this guy, but first I gotta tell you some things about you. And then comes back in chapter seven to talk about this Melchizedek. So that, when I'm preaching again in the fall, we'll do the rest of chapter five, we'll do chapter six, we'll do all that. Today, I want you to flip. Let's go on over to chapter seven where he actually does get back to this point about Melchizedek. We're gonna read Big chunks of scripture today. I'm going to comment as we go. I'm going, to, like I often do, I'm going to change out some of the pronouns for proper names so that we know what we're reading. And over each chunk of scripture, I'm going to give you a heading that gives you an idea of what we're about to read. So we're going to read verses one through three. My heading for this is: Who is Melchizedek? Why did you mention him? Who is this guy? Why should I care? So verses one through three answers: Who is this Melchizedek? Here we go. Verse one, chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He, Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, he's first king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. This guy, Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues, this this Melchizedek, he continues a priest forever. So that first thing I want to give you for the answer. Who is Melchizedek? Let's start here. He's both a priest and a king. That's what he is. He's both things. We'll talk about why that's important in just a second. Now, verses 1 through 3. They're referencing, as a lot of your New Testament does, It's referencing a story you can go read in Genesis 14. Here's the story in summary. I'm leaving a lot out. Here is the Genesis 14 story. Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah fame or infamy. The Sodom and Gomorrah story, that Lot. Lot has gotten himself into some trouble. And so Abraham, being a good uncle, he gathers some guys and he's going to go get Lot out of trouble. And Abraham is victorious. He's coming back from defeating the slaughter of the bad kings. That's the slaughter of the kings. Abraham goes and saves Lot and he's coming back and he's got all the spoils of war and Abraham already has a lot of stuff and out of nowhere as he's coming back from doing this in Genesis 14 this mysterious figure just comes up. Melchizedek just comes up and gives Abraham some kind of blessing and Abraham is so blown away by this figure who blesses him that Abraham gives back to Melchizedek a tenth of probably the spoils of war or a tenth of of what he had, ten of everything he had. So that's the story, and the story figures him as those two things. He's king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. If you are originally reading this, there's no category for that. There's no paradigm for that. There are kings, there are priests, and never the two shall meet. You don't have a priest who is also a king, or a king who is also a priest very different roles and you want them separated. So for the original reader in Genesis, the original reader here, it doesn't make sense. How was he a king and a priest? Here's why they are contra or here's how to contrast them. Kings for them. They came from the line of Judah. If you recall Jacob, this is what I'm talking about with this book. It assumes you know a lot of Old Testament. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Judah. Judah is the line of the kings. All the kings come from that lineage. If you were born from any of the other lines, you can't be king if you're the son of those sons. You've got to be from Judah. And this king, I think the easiest way to say it, they would represent God to the people. Priests represented people to God, but kings represented God to the people. And because of that, because they were the enforcer of God's law, there was some fear around them. That's not just in Israel. Throughout antiquity and history, the king is a fearful person to be in the presence of. He has the power of life and death in his hands. He has the power of, of a military in his hands. The king is fearsome. Often called in the compare contrast between kings and priests, the king is called the person of truth. He is there to dispense God's truth and justice. That's what a king does. In contrast, the priests were from another line. They were from the line of Levi. And Levi, these priests, they didn't necessarily represent God to the people, but as we've already said, they represented the people to God. So you were fearful of being in the presence of God? Well, this priest, he's a good counselor. He's a good friend. He goes in your place. Often in that contrast, that priest is called the person of tears instead of the person of truth. The king dispenses God's truth and justice, and the priest can sit with you. And empathize and sympathize with you. He's there in your hard times. Those are two very different things. But this Melchizedek, he's both. King of Salem. Priest of the Most High God. Neither from Judah or Levi. They haven't been born yet. Before they even came along, he was already priest and king. That's the other thing. Two more things I think I want you to notice from this chapter, or excuse me, this section about who Melchizedek is. So if he's a king and a priest, that's rare. But his order, his sequence is quite telling. He is first, this is in verse 2. He is first king of righteousness. And then he's king of peace. Or king of Salem. That's what uh, peace means. Or uh, Salem means peace. Consider that sequence in your own life. It's a good lesson. Sequence that any people need. You need righteousness before you can have any kind of real peace. The... Think of just the world you're in right now. Is it particularly peaceful? When you watch media, when you're out in the world, does it seem like a peaceful world? I would argue no. Why? Because it's an unrighteous place. Righteousness precedes peace. In your own life, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes you lack peace because of unrighteousness in your life. Sometimes it's the unrighteousness of someone else, but sometimes it's, it's your own, and it's causing calamity and chaos. Let me guarantee you this. If you want peace in your life, you will not get it without righteousness. If you are not pursuing righteousness, you will not get peace. You can fake it. You can get a fake peace that will last for a little while. I I had a, a, a joke, something of a joke on that. We were going through premarital counseling. Our counselor said I might be a peace faker instead of a peacemaker. Like I will fake peace instead of actually making it and creating it. Yeah, we can get some fake peace. But it will not be real. It will not be genuine. Righteousness is what we pursue. And as we pursue righteousness, we'll get peace. Then there is this oddity. Last thing I want you to notice. This oddity in Genesis. Genesis is almost obsessed with telling you where people came from and when they died. You will get long lists of men who, uh, this guy was born, he gave birth to these, his sons were these people, he lived this many years, and then he died. Next. Next. This guy lived, gave birth to these people, he lived this long, and then he died. That's the pattern. We want to know where they came from and when they died. Melchizedek well, has none of that. It specifically says here, we have no idea where he came from. We don't know what his lineage is. We don't know his nationality. We don't know anything about him. Uh, we don't know that he ever—he did die. He was a person. But he's, he's figured in the literature as not having a beginning and not having an end. And then I love in verse 3, this is, this is brilliant. He says in verse 3, uh, having uh, without father or mother or genealogy no beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the son of God that's not something I, I would not say to you you resemble your kid I would say your kid resembles you because you are the origin you're the origin of the child and so that chi- you don't look like the child the child looks like you you gave those genetics and so in this case thousands of years before Jesus physically came on the scene this Melchizedek resembles Jesus who hasn't even physically come into being yet because Jesus was one; he was always, he was eternal. So those things I want you to recognize about Melchizedek. Both priest and king, that's odd. He's righteousness before peace, and he's giving you this picture of being without end and without beginning like Jesus actually is. So in derivation, where he comes from, and in duration, the, the etern- eternality of him, he prefigures Christ to come. Now, we know the priests are good. Melchizedek is particularly interesting because he's a priest and king. Now we go to verses 4 through 10. I'm going to comment as we go. This is a big chunk of scripture where my heading is Melchizedek is better than Abraham. That's the next part of the argument. This Melchizedek I've introduced you to. He's better than your progenitor, the father of all of you. Here we go. Verse 4. See how great this man Melchizedek was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, the priests, who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is their brothers. Though these also, these though, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, the priest Levi, received tithes from Abraham and blessed Abraham who had the promises. Verse 7 It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek, for Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. It'd be hard to pull out the argument, Here's his argument. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham for at least these reasons. One, Mel- Melchizedek is the one who gave the blessing. And superiors give the blessing to the inferiors. That's what verse 7 says. We'll, again, use an illustration from your kids. If your kids give you a present. So C.S. Lewis had, a, had an example like this. One of his kids wanted to give him a present and asked for money. Like, can you give me money so I can get you a present? That's where actually worth the sixpence none the richer... Uh, idea comes from. Yeah, I'll give you blessings so that you can bless me, but ultimately I'm blessing me. Your kids do something for you. They're not, they really can't. They can't bless you. They don't have the capacity to do it. They don't have the resources to do it. We can bless them. This superior is the one always blessing the inferior. So Melchizedek comes on the scene, gives blessing, and it's as if Abraham is agreeing to this arrangement because then Abraham gives a tithe back. That's something that the lesser does for the for the greater, it's the, the priests that get tithes from the people, and in some ways they're equal. But that people is saying something about the position of the priest by tithing. So Melchizedek comes on the scene and he blesses Abraham, saying, "I am the superior." And Abraham says back, "You are the superior. Here's a tithe. Here's ten percent of everything I've got." So this is what we call in argumentation the transitive property. So the transitive property here, if his argument is Melchizedek is better than Abraham. And he's about to tell us, well, Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Then Jesus is better than Melchizedek and Abraham. Your progenitor, your father of fathers, he is, Jesus is better than all of them. Now, there is also just an odd argument here I I think I should mention. He's arguing that the priests themselves, Levi, the tribe of Levi themselves, they were there blessing Melchizedek. And you might ask, well, how? man? We're, we are not close in the timeline to the priest coming along. His argument is, well, Abraham is there. And in Abraham's body, in Abraham's loins, Levi is there. The, because Abraham will give birth to the ones who... not Sorry, give birth. He will be the father of those who become Levi, become the priest. In that way, the priests are there themselves. Also blessing Melchizedek, whoever this guy is. So, we have Melchizedek. King and priest, that's rare. or Not just rare, it's not supposed to happen. It's unique. Then Melchizedek is better than Abraham. So now I'm reading this and asking, okay, what are the consequences of that? If Abraham, the patriarch of our people, is superseded by this Melchizedek, what are the consequences? Why do I care for that? All right, well, let's get to verse 11 through 14 for that. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Let's actually pause there. It's a good question. I want to make sure you understand the question. If the priests... They're good. We've already said that. They're so good. The priests are good. If they're so good, why would David then later write in Psalm 110 a promise of someone coming like Melchizedek? Why do we need something other than the priests that we have? That's the question. Why do we need something other than the priests that we have in Judaism? Verse 12, we'll continue. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom, now we're getting into Jesus, for the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe. Didn't belong to Levi. Didn't belong to the tribes where the priests come from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Let's pause there for a second. So he's got this very good question that he's developed. All right, priests are good. But I get a promise that something better than the priesthood is coming. But you're also telling me that it's Jesus, that Jesus is the one better. He can't lawfully do that. He's not of Levi. He's from Judah. He's from the kingly tribe. You're telling me a problem here, writer of Hebrews, that if... Jesus is like Melchizedek, and he's a better priest, but he's not allowed to do that. So how are we going to solve this problem of Jesus not being from the right line? Verse 15, we are getting into the key, and verse 16 is where I really want to key in. So how do we solve that problem? Here we go. Verse 15, this, and that this is, if priests weren't the final plan, if, priest, if priest, the priesthood, while good, wasn't ultimately what God had for us, this becomes even more evident... When another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, get it, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, this Jesus has become a priest, it's not because of where he came from, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So how did Jesus, the king, the line of Judah, how did he lawfully become a become a priest, to be our high priest to represent us to God. How did he do that? Because of his indestructible life. Because of the cross and the resurrection. That's the answer. Because he was doing, get this, he did a better job than the priest did. By absorbing the wrath of God forever, by the wrath of God being met with the justice of God on the cross, Jesus becomes a way better priest than them. All they did, all they could do, was make the sacrifices and go through all of the the ordinances and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the the blood. They'd have to do it again and again and again and again. Jesus was way better. He did it one time, delivered it for one time, and for all of time, the people of God are redeemed from their sin. How did he become a priest? By having an indestructible life, by defeating death, by defeating sin. That's how Jesus is better than the priests. Jesus' death, I love this reality. Jesus' death, then, means he represents us as he goes to God on our behalf as our advocate. He's not arguing for what the priest argued for. The priests are going in and arguing, we've got the sacrifice for sin here, we've got the blood of, of bulls and goats, and we're going to sprinkle it. Will you give them mercy? Will you give the, the people mercy as we give you this sacrifice? That's their argument. Jesus is not arguing for mercy. He goes to the Father on your behalf, and he wants Justice. He doesn't go on my behalf and say, God, Corey sinned again. He just keeps doing it. He just keeps saying this, thinking that, keeps sinning. Will you give him some mercy? That's not Jesus' argument for me. Jesus goes to God on my behalf and he says, Corey sinned again. And you've already punished him for that in me. Mm-hmm. You don't pun- I'm asking I'm not, I'm not asking God. for mercy for him. I'm asking for justice yeah. for. For for you, I'm asking justice for Corey. I already paid for that, and you can't take a double payment. I love the picture we get here of Jesus, the better priest, bringing something better than the priest ever could. So how did he do it? How did this Jesus become a priest when he's in the wrong line? He did it by de- defeating death. He did it by defeating sin and bringing God a better sacrifice on your behalf. Well, I'll tell the story. I think I'm good on I'm good on time. All right, I think. I could be wrong. You tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think there's a picture of this in the Old Testament that I love. Besides a lot of the stories of Jesus, and then I would argue the story of Ruth. I love the story of Ruth. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament is my favorite. So my third favorite story is the Joseph story. I think there's a picture of this in the Joseph story where the king, the kingly line, steps in to play the priest role as a prefigure for Jesus. I think it's with Judah. If you remember... Joseph. Oh, I'm, Now I'm assuming you know the Old Testament. Uh, I hope you know the Joseph story. Very famous story. Uh, so Joseph ends up number two in Egypt and uh, under the Pharaoh. And his brothers, the brothers who sold him into slavery, are before Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph because Joseph probably looks very, very different. And he wants to know, are you the same guys? Like, has your character changed? Are you any different than people who, who sold me into slavery? And so Joseph sets up quite the ruse. He gets his, his men to hide valuable things from the Pharaoh in the, in the packs, the, the sacks for the, the brothers. So they're going home. The brothers are going home. Joseph sends, sends his men to capture them and say, You stole these things from the Pharaoh, so bring them back. And in that, in that conflict there before them, Joseph is saying, I want Benjamin, the youngest son who has a particular love from the father. Benjamin, kind of like Joseph would have been. I want Benjamin. We're keeping him and you guys can go. And it's Judah. Judah finally, who didn't do anything to keep his young son, his young brother from being sold into slavery. Judah, all these years later, later, he steps up and says, not him. Don't take Benjamin. Take me. I'll go in his stead. Judah the king stepping up to play the priest role, all go on Benjamin's behalf to take that punishment. I think that's there and part of what's layered in here as this picture of Jesus taking our place. Two more chunks of Scripture. Let's skip to verses 23 through 25, where I've got this one as the header. We're going to just say it really clearly. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. So we've got it set up. Melchizedek is kind of better than the priest, better than Abraham, and now let's land it with Jesus is better than Melchizedek, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I hope you hear the song we sing. It's one of my favorites we sing in that verse. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. Well, what's my plea to this very good, high, uh, this very good judge? I have a great high priest. His name is love. Well, what's he doing? He ever lives and pleads for me. That's where this is. He's just pleading, making intercession for me to the Father. A little piece of trivia here as he's comparing Jesus to the, the priesthood and Melchizedek. In Numbers, you will find... That priests could only serve from ages 25 to 50. And so after that, they could not be in the priesthood anymore. Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't have a a term limit on him. He serves eternally. Consider the instability that comes with losing priests and new ones coming in. You never know what you're going to get. But Jesus is eternal. He's stable. You can count on him. And another way that he is superior right here. He can save to the uttermost those who draw near. Now, what could the priest do? The priest were a Jewish priest representing a Jewish people and maybe others that had been grafted in and had married in, maybe. He could represent a Jewish people in, in a Jewish temple. That's what he could do. Hi Jesus. Jesus can save to the uttermost anyone who draws near. Because Jesus is... Melchizedek is like Jesus that way. We don't know where Melchizedek came from. We don't know if he's Jewish descent. We don't know what he is, but he could represent the people to God, and then Jesus can do that for every tribe, tongue, and nation. He can represent anyone that's way better than the priests were, as good as the priests were. And we'll finish in verses 26 through 28. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. The priest had to do that. And then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which, will, which came later than the law, appoints not, not just a son. Excuse me, not just a priest. Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As we close here, the text at least. It's fitting that we have a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. This is an echo from earlier in the sermon where we yes, we know he's sympathetic, he's close to us, but he is without sin. He isn't like us. And here, we're, we're holding Jesus up, high and holy. He's not like those priests we had. They, they had to go in and even sacrifice for themselves and their own sins. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He offers... Permanence, No longer daily sacrifices or yearly sacrifices. No sacrifices for himself. He made one sacrifice for all of time, delivering himself up. And we see here at the very end, a big difference between him and the priests is the nature of the appointment. They were appointed by law. And then the Hebrews writer here says, he's not appointed by law. He's appointed by oath. Well, who made the oath? God did. That's what Psalm 110 is. Psalm 110 is God saying, I will make you the Messiah. We know that to be Jesus. I will make you priest forever. It is not by the law, but God making a promise. I will make this Messiah. I will make this Jesus priest forever. And he never breaks his promises. So we can look there chapters, a little bit of chapter 4, 5, and and 7, and see we have Jesus, the great high priest. He's perfect forever. That's the text. I have two application points for you. One of them is very short, and then I want to spend some time on the second one uh, because it really digs back into the text. One short one here is just a matter of counsel from one of your elders to you as you read the scriptures. One is look for Jesus in the Old Testament. I learned a lot studying this that I just didn't know. Pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, I, I think I would have read right past Genesis 14 and come across a Melchizedek character and just keep going. But that teaches me a lot about Jesus. I need to dig in and look for Jesus when I read the Old Testament because it informs so much of the New Testament. Amen. A very important story in the New Testament is after Jesus is resurrected, it's in Luke, there, he, uh, he appears to two disciples. There are two disciples of Jesus walking down a road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize him. And Jesus, the text tells us, he starts with the law in the prophets and he tells those two men how the entire book is written of him. He tells them everything you know from the Law and the Prophets is really about me. It all points to me. I've said often that's the one Bible study I would give just about anything to a sat in on. I want to hear Jesus explain how the Law and the Prophets is really about him. Some of those when we read them they're super easy. You read the Passover and and this is kind of obvious alright so the death angel's coming and if I kill a lamb and put the blood over my door then the death angel will pass over me. Pretty simple. We see that Jesus was sacrificed for sins, and so there's a picture of Jesus in that. Those pictures get more obscure in the temple sometimes or in the tabernacle, but there's lots of pictures of what Jesus does for us all over the Old Testament. I'll give you just one because I want to get you in the habit of thinking that way if you read the Old Testament and be looking for Jesus. In chapter 6, when we come back and preach it in the fall, there was one I'd never recognized, and I thought it was awesome. There was in the Old Testament these things called cities of refuge. If you, under the law, accidentally killed somebody, that person's family could rightfully take vengeance on you. Take your life for the the life that you accidentally took. And so if you accidentally killed somebody, you could go to one of these cities of refuge. And you could stay there. And as long as you stayed in the walls, then vengeance could not be taken on you. And then the end of that law is when whoever the high priest was at the time, uh, when you accidentally killed that person, when that high priest died, then you're free. Those, that family can't take vengeance on you. You can operate freely in the land and go about what you are doing. That's a picture of Jesus. I've done something that sin and death should take vengeance on me. I'm unsafe because of what I've done. I need to run somewhere. Where can I run to? I want to run to Jesus, He'll be my refuge. And then a picture of him as priest when the priest dies. There's a release of that curse. There's Jesus all over the place. And I just want you to be thinking that way as you read through the Old Testament. There's pictures of Jesus as he fulfills the law. Right, that's part one. Just look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, two, I want to spend some more time on this. Here's your point. Hold fast to Jesus, the better king and high priest. Hold fast to Jesus, the better king and high priest. We're going to see here that he, has, he offers to us a better excuse me a perfect sympathy a perfect sacrifice and a, he's a perfect son we're going to see those three number 1 perfect sympathy i pick up that we get a little bit affected by not a little bit we get a lot affected by the culture we're in when we think about sympathy and empathy that we might have a worldly version of that and we can look to jesus for a better version of it we see in this text he is close to us he knows our trials he knows our troubles But I think we get the fullness of his being a priest and king and his sympathy in a story in the New Testament. I think about the story of Mary and Martha when Lazarus dies. Lazarus, their brother, dies. Jesus comes on the scene, and both women say the same thing to him, and he gives two very different responses. Martha says, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus says back to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. You're going to see... You're going to see your, your brother again. That's, I'm paraphrasing. He gave her truth. In our context, we might look to Jesus and go, aren't you being a little unsympathetic? In that situation, what Martha needed, Jesus just knew, she needed some truth. She needed truth to respond to her feelings. She needed truth to respond to, the, to what she was going through. Mary comes and says the same thing. If you would have been here, my brother would have died. And instead of telling her the truth we get the very famous verse. Jesus wept. He just felt it with He has ministry of truth, and he has ministry of tears. We're going to need to model that for each other. Sometimes we need to give each other the truth, and that's hard. Sometimes we just need to sit with each other, just like Jesus wept. His sympathy is perfect. That's going to be hard for us to do, but I don't want sympathy just to me. Not just that I don't want. I'm telling you that the biblical version of sympathy is not just we cry with each other. That's important. That's an important part. The other part is sometimes the sympathetic thing to do is give someone the truth about what the Lord has to say on a given thing. That's hard sometimes, but that is the picture we get from Jesus with Mary and Martha. So we have, hold fast to Jesus, this better king and high priest. Why? Because he has a perfect sympathy. Number two, he has a perfect sacrifice. I also wrote this one down as perfect salvation. You pick the word. Admittedly, this is one I came I came to after dwelling on this passage a lot. I think instinctively, in the room, in this room, we might understand the desire for the idea of a priest, the idea of a go-between. I think we might know in in our gut, there's something instinctive. We know something's wrong with us. We know something is incomplete. And so the idea of going before God just the way we are doesn't seem quite right. I think we instinctively know that. And so we have this great solution. We have Jesus, the high priest. He he will make us complete before God in his work. He will make us okay. But I think what our hearts do is we look for different priests. We look for lesser priests instead of looking to Jesus. We look to our accomplishments or our resume to say, that's what's going to make me okay. I don't need a Jesus to make me okay. If I accomplish enough, that'll be it. That's what's going to make me okay. I'll use that as my priest. For some of us, it's other people's approval. It's a particular person's approval or affection. And we think to ourselves, that's what I need. That's what's going to make me okay. That person loving me, that person approving of me, that's going to make me okay. That's going to be my priest. For some of us, it's acclaim. It's fame. It's attention. And we think, if I can get that much attention, if I can get that many likes, that's going to that's gonna make me feel okay. I know I'll be complete if I get that. So that's going to be my priest. We may not think that internally, but that's what our heart is doing. It's looking for a priest that will make us okay. For some, it's, romantic, it's a romantic love. It's getting that. If I can just get that kind of relationship, that's going to make me complete. That's what's going to make me okay. That's going to be my priest. And we're all deeply desiring for just something to tell us we're okay but we're going to lesser priests to get it. And then when we go to that priest, the sacrifices we'll offer to feel okay are intense. We'll give up our integrity. We'll give up our purity. We'll give up our honor to get a priest that will make us feel like we're complete. So what I'm trying to give you from Hebrews today is don't go to those other priests. Don't sacrifice those things. Go to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest who makes you okay. Not, you're not okay. In Christ, you are, though. In Christ, you are wonderfully, perfectly, complete. You don't need other priests. You don't need other sacrifices. He offers us a perfect sympathy and a perfect sacrifice. And then, short one here, he is also the perfect son. That's the last verse we read there. The last verse we read, there's a meaningful piece of literature there. We've been talking about priests the whole time. And then the last line is, He appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Telling us what has become part of the theme today, this son has made a family out of us. It's it's through Jesus that all can come. It's not just Jewish people. He's made us a family. He keeps us in the family. We'll see that develop more as we go through the Hebrew series. There's just this this prefiguring of Melchizedek and Jesus that says, these guys, this Jesus above Melchizedek, makes a people, creates a people, keeps that people together. He's the perfect son that makes us sons and daughters with him. He does that through his sacrifice that we just talked about. So perfect sympathy, perfect sacrifice, perfect son. Final thought for me today. He gives us all that. Perfect sacrifice, being a perfect son, perfect sympathy. And for us, sometimes we respond with an imperfect submission. It occurs to me that when Abraham came across Melchizedek... He just had to worship. Melchizedek was so remarkable, he had to give 10%. He had to give something to Melchizedek. How much more should that be the case for us who have not come across Melchizedek, but have come across Jesus? Jesus, who's better than Melchizedek, better than Abraham. And we've come across Jesus. The response for us should be like Abraham's was to Melchizedek, but more. Magnitudes more that we would be fully in submission to this king. Fully in submission to the priest who goes on, uh, goes, goes to God on our behalf. And so let me challenge you today. Respond to perfect sympathy and perfect sacrifice and his perfect son. Respond with an ever-perfecting submission to him in his ways. Moses gave a tenth of all he had. I'm not teaching tithing to you today. I am teaching you that your resources, your talents, your treasure, your attention, your time, whatever you have, you're not going to use it any way better than giving it to King Jesus who has perfect sympathy, perfect sacrifice, who is that perfect son, who is that great high priest that we need to go before us to God. I'm going to pray for us as the band comes up. And uh, Pastor Doug will be back next week, getting back into the law. I'll be back in the fall.